Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Brew and Bite Show. First up, we'll say hello to Tina. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm suffering slightly because I started gardening. It's been nice and sunny this week. That makes a change. Indeed, and that means all the weeds are growing. Next up, we'll say hello to Alistair. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Craig. Just been catching up on the, the latest Apple news. And not forgetting, how is Martin? Uh, Martin is uh, recovering. I was uh, taken on a surprise birthday trip around London yesterday with, by my wife and sister. We went off to the Titanic exhibition and we uh, then toured around Brick Lane area and stuff like that. So walked much further than I have done for ages. Uh, so yeah, so I'm sitting in the chair relaxing today. Amazing. The Titanic comes highly recommended if none of the other panel have been to see it yet. What will be our first topic for the news this week? I think the EU have been getting involved in technology yet again. The EU is going to require iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook or Meta's Messenger to communicate with smaller messaging apps. What happened, Alistair? What did they come up with this time? So from the same guys who produced the cookie notification and the uh, GDPR, they have now suggested that they would like, under the Digital Marketing Act, all major providers from who have greater than 45 million users have to provide some form of alternative or a different system for dealing with it. And it's to do with privacy and uh, security. And it's trying to get around this problem, which they've said of not having enough independent small companies to rival the big companies. Also, apart from Signal and Telegram, the rest are all American. So that could also be part of the issue. The other minor issue they were talking about was legislation because if it all is controlled by two or three companies, it gets very hard to legislate or bring anything new into it. But of course, being in the European Union, they'll probably come up with some slightly more annoying way to do it. Because to me, the issues there would be security. You know, you, the, the the big boys have enough of a problem keeping their servers safe and your messaging safe and everything else. Smaller companies may not have that resource. If it's now multi-platform, you could be endangering all your own security because one of the smaller outfits may may let the may let the bad guys in the the other thing which comes with that is that it's not clear how this is going to be implemented it's not necessarily going to go i message to this new third individual it's probably going to be something completely separate from that and just like when email first came out or browsers first came out or search engines first came out there were lots of alternative and then they got narrowed down i think what they're looking at is trying to provide alternative messaging for non-secure information so it's sort of like oh i'm coming home at 4 p.m is not that exciting but if it's a message from your bank well that's more secure so we might end up with two-tier messaging system the one which is native to the platform will be used primarily for secure messaging. Anything which is considered non-secure will be on the third-party platforms. The other problem we've got is if they start going by country, it's going to get even more complicated. I just find it interesting, though, because if you look at WhatsApp, at one stage WhatsApp was a disruptor. It was a small app compared to everything else. And um, it's come in and, it, and it's created a market. You know, if I send a picture, I generally send it in WhatsApp. Why? Because I don't have to pay for any like picture costs, which I would do with an iMessage. And, you know, how interested people are going to be. 
this is the the problem. I mean, if we look at the cookie notification system that was presented to us, and we don't have a choice to get out of it. Now, if you look at why WhatsApp was created, it was because in America you had to pay to send and receive text messages originally. And that was costing people a fortune, especially if you're getting lots of junk spam messages and you had to buy them in bundles. And say if you bought 100 and you got 50 spam messages, you had a, you lost 50 and you could only send 50 that month. So that was part of the reason. The second big problem was if you were trying to send off your network in certain countries, it was very expensive because you had cross-network charges. So those were all good reasons for creating an instant messaging system. More importantly, they wanted a system which could run when you didn't have any mobile phone signal. So you could be in your office and have perfect signal on Wi-Fi. If we're not careful, it's going to turn up a bit like the general election where anyone can stand to become an MP. And you get a list, you know, almost like two foot long of who would you like to select? I had two trials of thought on this. One, what if you're a small messaging app and then you're suddenly integrated into a much larger system, your IT infrastructure is not going to cope if you've suddenly onboarded more than 45 million customers that are trying to send messages back and forth to communicate with iMessage, WhatsApp, Meta, whichever one you want to choose. The security aspect of it was a concern. I know we've brought that up, but I quite loved some of the facts that came up on the EU's legislation Twitter account, the feedback they got automatically was, I don't mind as long as I can block Facebook as an option. What was the other one? I'm quite happy to choose which system or search engine I can use as long as I have a chance to block and choose what I want to block. Will that be an option? Mm. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I mean, if we go on nationality, it could get very confusing for us because it could be if you live in Wales or Scotland, does that mean you have to go for one which is na- local to that region? Or does it mean if you're sending from UK, from England to Scotland, you have to make it compatible with Scottish law because they're under different law than, Brit- than English law? I mean, it gets it's going to open a whole range of new possibilities also here's the bigger problem let's say that all three of us are on three separate platforms how do we communicate with each other you you forgot to mention there um uh, alistair we're not part of the eu so would it even apply to the uk are we going to have to have a separate set of rules just for the uk unfortunately uh, we still have an eu cookie monster on our computers yeah and as things go with our government they seem to borrow rules of their neighbor and just reword them slightly. So will they probably follow suit? It is interesting though, isn't it? Because there's the big discussion with iMessage and the bl- the blue text box and the green text box. And that's a deliberate strategy that they have continued. And apparently in some areas, in some schools, for instance, if your text box isn't blue, then you're bullied because clearly you don't have an iPhone. The, the, the other thing you just reminded me of is, do you remember when WhatsApp first came out before it got bought? by what was then Facebook, that you couldn't send intercontinent. So Americans could not send to Britain WhatsApp messages. It was region locked. Interesting. Like a DVD. And one interesting fact behind the color of the bubbles. I don't know if you guys know this. So Apple introduced the blue bubble, which is meant to be that it's free to send a message. And the reason they're green is that they're paid for. 
because the green represents the US dollar bill color. That was their thought process behind it. So what color are we going to get next? Yellow for the third parties? Place your bets. You could have gray, which is a common one that they've used in the past, but that's normally used for service messaging. I reckon puce myself. I, I reckon it will probably be, if Apple are going down their usual color route, it will be either orange or purple. Does that mean I can't have a space gray bubble? Some happy news for our EU listeners is that Apple officially launched the HomePod Mini. Which countries are they available in? Belgium. Hooray! Switzerland. And Alistair? Netherlands. And the interesting thing is that they've gone from dollar to euro conversion, of course. And I think they are 89 euros or 99 euros. Is that the Apple exchange rate? Does that mean that they're cheaper than buying them in the UK? But what else are Apple up to? Rumour has it they're going to introduce a hardware subscription service for their products. What does that look like? Is this going down the route of what they started in America with the Apple card? So the Goldman Sachs credit cards? where you you can buy the Apple products at a slight discount with their Apple card. And one of the rumors is that when they bought this new company, that you would be able to rent your phone. So you wouldn't actually own your phone. The phone would be Apple at all times, and you'd rent the phone for the length of your contract, which would cause a few interesting questions, such as, do you own the data and the photographs if it's not your phone? It's interesting because for the UK... Apple do offer that kind of service with the iPhone, but the financing side of it is not done by Apple. It's a third party. So does this mean they're actually going to take it on themselves? Or as you said, Alistair, will it give them an ability to add bundles with them? One rumor is, is if you buy it on the Apple Finance, it comes with Apple Care straight away. Is it finance or is it rent? Because if it's finance, eventually you'll own it. Whereas if you're renting it, it could be that you never own it. And there's also a third option, which is what they do with cars, where until the final payment, you don't actually own it. And if it's involved in a car crash, you don't own it. And it's the car company who are li- who, who take the car from you. That's similar to most HP purchases, isn't it? If you buy anything, it's not yours until the final payment is made. So that that is, but I suppose it might be like their hybrid phone system. You you rent the phone for the first year, basically, don't you? And then you can either swap it for a new one at the end of the year, or you can carry on the payments and then purchase the machine outright after twenty months. So if it's a similar sort of scheme that you want to buy a new MacBook Pro, for example, that you would pay for it on a monthly basis for the first year, then have the option to upgrade it if you wanted to, or you buy outright by carrying on the payments. So it sounds like a a cross between a rent and HP service. Now, if they tied that up with their own card, which they recently bought a uh, company that does credit check uh, in this this country, they may be setting it up so that the, the credit, their own Apple card could now work in this country and you would buy your equipment based upon that card, all tied up with all the other services they provide. So you're... You're making a one monthly payment or like you've got your mortgage, you've got your rates and then you've got your Apple payment. And it's interesting because there are some of the phone companies already do things like you can rent an iPad, you can rent certain tech. So there are people that do it. And 
for those of us that are slightly older, this is almost going back to radio rentals. People used to rent TVs. They used to rent washing machines. So, you know, it could be for some people that, that they they can't afford to buy things. They want them. They can afford to pay a certain amount per month. So it means that they can have what they want now rather than, you know, get a loan or do something else. It doesn't appeal to me, but I can see if there was the option that Martin described where you rented it for a year and at the end of the year you said, okay, I want want the latest one now. I want to swap it and I'm going to carry on renting. There might be some people that just want the latest all the time and they're prepared to just pay a certain amount per month to have it. But look at it from a slightly different perspective. If it's now that you don't own anything, you don't have any assets which is a slightly different point of view from a tax. Also, it's putting people into debt, regardless of whether they can pay for it or not. So this gets into another interesting problem, whereby you only have to look at what happened with Lehman Brothers when they decided to shut down the company, and they shut down all the phones instantaneously, and there was no way to get in contact with anyone once they had shut down the business. Now, if, if you suddenly lose your job and you can't make payments on your phone, your phone is cut off and the phone is taken away from you. It's no different from from having bank loans and HP commitments, all the other things that people have anyway. You know, you have your, your mortgage in the same way. You don't own the house you live in until you've made the final 20, 50 year payment. So uh, most people are, are, are living under those uh, those conditions already. Uh, how many people save up for two years the two or three thousand pound needed to buy the next bit of kit to find out that the next bit of cat has come out and it's another 500 quid. So a lot of people already use easy payments and uh, and things like that. But they don't bring out the kit on the same kind of schedule, do they? Mac Studio, iMac, all that. So so will they make it that like um, what they call a PCP for a private car purchase? It might be they'll say, right, if you want to buy a Mac Studio now, kit it out eight grand, we're going to balance that over three years because it's unlikely that you will upgrade that machine in that period. Do you also think, from a different perspective, a good idea from the from an environmental point of view? Because you're not effectively owning your device, say, at the end of the two years, you give back in your device like they do with that Apple recycling program. That would then be no different from your trading value. If after the end of the three years you want to get the Mac Studio Mark II, there will be a trading of your old kit against that new one before they set the new monthly price. So if you have trashed it, then you're going to get a very poor trading value with anything other than scrap, or if you've been conscientious and you've looked after it and it goes back to them in a condition that they can refurbish it fairly cost-effectively and then sell it on as a a a second-hand machine, then that would be a much higher value against your new machine. So it's it's no different from purchasing a car. You know, if you're at the end of the three- or four-year period, when the car goes back, it's valued as the return, and that's what you either pay off to buy it or you put that against the cost of a replacement car. So it'd be pretty similar to that. And then at the end of the day, it means Apple have even more control over what's going on with their products. And it'd be interesting as well, if you were renting, say, a laptop, as part of that rental, would you automatically get a huge amount of iCloud storage? Because ultimately, if you're renting the laptop and then you think, do you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore, you've got all this data. So unless you're someone that then says, oh, I'm going to be a bit organized here, I'm not going to do this anymore, and then you go off and buy yourself a, a hard drive so that you can save all your data, it'll be interesting what people do with their data. Well, no no different from having a good backup strategy now, Tina. You, you, you should have 
all your data not only stored on our cloud, you should have separate backups in various formats. Um, the last point I wanted to make about the potential hiring is I'm sure Apple realised that if you're not paying it all of the money up front, you'll be more tempted to up the spec of the machine you're buying because if you're going to put it on over a period of time. So whereas you might have just bought, say, uh, the Mac Studio Pro, because you can pay for it over a period of time, you might be more tempted to actually get the Max Pro, Pro Mac with the Ultra chip. So I think there could be some benefit to Apple in increased sales because you're going to spec up because you're not as limited with, you know, I've only got £2,000 to spend, that's it. That's actually a really good example because I know Amazon have started doing this to pay a balance over a period of time and it's more favourable to pick the higher spec. You'll notice it a lot, especially in iPads on there at the moment, for sure. But one other thing that comes in a box, of course, are birthday presents. And whose birthday was it this month? It was Mac OS X. Mac OS X is officially, it's actually only 19 years up until Big Sur. Does anybody remember the beta of Mac OS X? Yes, very much so. And what could you install it on? We installed it on a fourth generation iMac. You know, one of the ones which are grey on the sides. Yeah, we had it on some blue and white G3s. I even put it onto my, I had a Prismo, the uh, Bronze Key Prismo laptop, the G3 laptop. One of the best ever made. I love that machine. Um, but that, that was the first to run OS ten beta. I had it on a G4. The one just before Quicksilver. Yeah, it was officially launched on the 24th of March 2001. The reviews are out. What did we see from the Apple event? And does anybody want to pick something that they would like to talk about first? Well, I haven't ordered anything. It, it, I, I had been waiting on the event because I was in this frustrating issue about wanting a larger iMac, the 27-inch iMac. Um, and I thought it was going to clarify that they were going to launch a 27-inch iMac and I could make my decision about that or a MacBook Pro. But, of course, they've just thrown in even more decisions to make, whether or not you go for a studio or you go for the studio display as well, because now you're talking about up to three and a half, four thousand pounds to get that 27-inch iMac kind of set up. So whether a 27-inch iMac would have come in at the same sort of price, I'm not. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been too far short of that. Once you're into that kind of territory, three and a half to four thousand pound, then you're also into a maxed out MacBook Pro 16-inch. So it's just made the decisions even even more of a an issue if you're if you're in that position that you want a larger screen Apple machine. I am intrigued with the Apple Studio display. We won't delve too much into the details because I'm sure everybody saw the event, but what things have we found out since it's been released? The cable can't be taken off the back of it, the power cable. Well, it can. If you give it a really good yank, it will come out. It's not f totally fixed. So if, the, if your cat chews through the power cable, you could get it replaced without having to send the whole machine back. It's interesting you made that comment. So rumour has it that it has to go to an Apple service provider to have a new cable fitted because the cable can't physically be pulled out or advised to be pulled out. And they've actually been provided a rather strange tool to pull the cable out in Apple service centres. I don't know if anybody's seen them. It looks like a huge wallpaper roller. 
Well, it's, a, it's a circular cam. Yeah, you just hook it on and use the cam me- the cam lever to pull it out. I'd be intrigued. I wonder if we have a service price for doing that yet. Were there any other things that we picked up? Hasn't the display got some form of chip in it, which is interesting? It has got an A15 Bionic chip in it, which effectively makes it like a 27-inch iPad. Not that I'm going to try and lug it around on the tube to read a book, but... Uh, yeah, it has uh, a camera and speakers and a chip. Uh, and I believe it's a pared-down version of iOS that it's running. I'm not sure. I haven't read what, what operating system it's running, but it does have its own RAM as well. So it is like a pared-down iMac almost or a giant iPad. It's It's got quite a few things inside it. That's what I find interesting because where's it going next? If it's got its own operating system effectively, albeit a really cut-down one, what else are they hoping to do with it? I mean, it does centre stage, so that's interesting. But, you know, have they got any other sort of plans that they want to do with it? Is there a possibility that if it's tied to a smaller, sort of like the, the Mac Mini, uh, would it be that the, the two chips could work in conjunction? So the M1 chip in a Mac Mini would be able to use some of the power and resource of a chip in the screen to do more advanced work like AI work or 3D work or stuff stuff like that on the, on the screen. Or not necessarily the Mac Mini, if you had a laptop and you paired it. So say you for someone like me that's got a, a like a MacBook Air that I use because I'm travelling around, so clearly in the last two years we haven't done a lot of that, but then when I get home I want something that's slightly more powerful, would I then be able to pair, you know, get a display link up my MacBook Air and then them somehow support each other so that my MacBook Air's got a bit more power. That could maybe work with any M1-powered an iPad or an Air or a Mac Mini to give the M1 chip the boost. I, I thought they were going to announce a, an M1 Pro and Max version um, at the show, but I think I think that announcement got pulled. So maybe this would be a, enable them to, to give a power boost to M1 chips. One of the things that seems logical is that they've got, from the early releases we've seen of the camera on the studio display, it's the bit grainy and is not as good as some of the best stuff on the market. And Apple says, we're hoping to release a software update to improve this. So just like any computer, you have updates as more and more people start to use them as security features get added or new improvements to new computers which haven't been released. You want to let the display know about them, so you release updates which would then fix them inside the display. Now, if you wanted to keep that display for maybe five years, you'd want it to stay current and up-to-date, just like you can with a camera and you get all the latest raw updates. It's that sort of change and update and it makes a lot of sense because what you you're moving away from is just having a slave unit monitor and everything has to be on the computer whereas why don't you move half of it onto the display and then that can produce higher resolution output and that can keep the laptops lighter because you don't have to put such a beefy graphics card in so it was one possibility one of the things I saw was a lot of the um, uh, voices on who commentate on Mac um, were all seem to be disappointed. They were expecting uh, an XLR display in a, a thousand pound piece of kit. And I just thought that they were, from their point of view and from a professional point of view, this monitor isn't for them. I think this is more for general use. And for most people, I think the onboard camera is adequate. There's not many. There's no, I can't see any other monitor which has a better onboard camera. You can obviously buy separate cameras, but 
if you look at the monitors which have cameras, they're all operating in around about that range. So for, for general use and for people who want to use Zoom and stuff like that uh, with a, a one one component kit setup, then I think the, the screen works quite well for them. The only common thing that really got most people annoyed was the cost. It does seem to be Apple tax plus VAT or whatever you want to call it. It does seem to be quite high for what it's offering. I know it's the only 5K monitor out there, but there are 4K monitors, even slightly bigger size, that are a you know, much better value if you want it in that term. Interesting. So the internals of the studio display, it actually does run iOS 15.4 currently. I think the chip is there for a number of reasons, not necessarily the hype that it could become an Apple TV. I think a lot of that comes down to some of the added features and what power it needs to run it. So firstly, it can respond to, hey, Apple lady. So it does need a chip to run those facilities. Also, Tina, you mentioned the center stage. I don't think that would be capable without a chip. And there needs to be some way of managing the spatial audio from the speakers. Maybe that's the reason why they had to embed the chip. It's interesting because wasn't one of the other criticisms that it doesn't support all of the iPad lineups as an external display? Well, is that because the iPads aren't powerful enough to run the display rather than display? You also forgot to mention that chip might be there so it can uh, it can do animojis through the uh, uh, inbuilt camera. Because that's really important. It is. You, everyone's got to have their own animoji. I particularly like the lion, I'll be honest. Does anybody have a new favourite emoji since the recent update? No, I haven't seen any ones yet that I, I've, I've taken a particular fancy to. Just to mention a few that I can think of. There's now a troll, so you can have an internet troll. And not forgetting the three magic beans which is an interesting add to the emoji collection. You'd need a lot of magic beans to buy the next product. What do we think of the Mac Studio with the M1 Ultra? Even for professionals, from what I've heard, it's overkill. Um, one or two just think that they, they, they don't need that power at the moment. They always want more power. It's a bit like a turbocharged Porsche. Do you need to put a supercharger on it as well? Well, well, yes. But they're looking at where we're going to go with this as as more and more cameras start to do 8K now. That sort of power will be will be needed. The most interesting thing I heard though, which was really strange, was that on single core performance, the Ultra is no quicker than the M1 in Tina's MacBook Air. The single core performance is the same across all four M1 chips. It's only when you get into multi-core use and applications that make um, use of the multi-core features that then it really starts to sing and fly. But it just really seems really strange that uh, the Ultra has has a similar score, single core to the M1 chip. I think some benchmarks came out and kind of come to the same conclusion, if I'm not mistaken. It was a few seconds within, in terms of processing a file, but it was literally the same clock speed. Yeah, you're you're not going to send an iMessage message any quicker on an M1 or an M1 Ultra, or look at your emails, or look at uh, the internet. You know, the basic stuff is running very similar, but... um, and this is one of the, one of the conversations that the the new version of Final Cut Pro we, we might see this year may very well make use of that for uh, certainly for more three D work. And I know I know my own particular company would deal with Archicad again. They're looking at the renders and the the detail that you'll be able to do in three D uh, will be just you know enhanced hugely 
by that kind of raw power. So I think what's interesting about this one is it's you've got the entry-level Mac Mini, then you've got the studio version. So you've got like the consumer version and the pro-consumer version. So we've gone back in a way to having like the MacBook versus the MacBook Pro. We've got the Mac Mini versus the Mac Mini Pro, but they're not calling it Pro, they're calling it Studio. This is sort of looking at where things are going in the future. Now, there also could be a theory which comes out from this, which is we're not going to upgrade the Mac Minis for some time to come. So as a result of that, get used to the fact that this Mac Studio is going to be around for some time, and that's why we've made it more powerful, because in four years' time, that's when we're going to give you the new update. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because... They've looked at um, some of the the hard drives within the studio, and although there are empty slots for SSDs, you you can't swap your own in. And that's especially now with this whole idea of being able to fix it yourself, whatever the proper rule law is, that's an interesting one. Um, And presumably people are going to be thinking, well, I need to spec this out as much as possible because I can't upgrade any of it once I've bought it. There is also the other idea that this was not made for the consumer market. So that they were saying that this was made for more videographers, the film industry, and those who work in universities who needed a machine which was just slightly more powerful to do 3D rendering. This is a professional market. There's a a design studio that I know and work with, uh, and they have eight positions uh, where their uh, their draftsmen work. The last time they changed them, they changed to the Mac Pro, uh, and each machine cost, I think, about £26,000 with the specification they they set up. Now, to change eight of those, you're talking about, what, nearly £200,000. If you can buy an £8,000 Mac Studio, fully maxed, which will do all that, you know, that you're talking about a realistic change in price cost that they can do. So I think that's where the market lies. It's it's office-based, it's commercial-based, and it's also for... Uh, there's obviously there's people out there who just want to buy the latest Apple kit and have it. That's because they're that's their bent. That's what they like doing. I have an interesting question. So we saw the death of the 27 inch iMac. Was the Mac Studio and the Studio Display its replacement? But more importantly, if I own an office, which Mac do I buy for my employees? Do I want rainbow coloured 24 inch iMacs or? Is the Mac Mini now the the office device? So if you look at universities around about the turn of the century, what you found was they all went for internet-based units were iMacs. So you have like the internet room and doing simple tasks. And then you would have next to the print server. In those days, you had to have one machine dedicated to just doing printing. That was the high-end Mac. And so I would say what you'd probably do if you had an office, you'd have a whole range of colorful iMacs, but then you'd have for the higher end lot would do Mac Minis or Mac Studios, but they would go up by usage case scenario. But you still keep the Mac Pros for the really high end design stuff because they are not going to change their machines for what, eight years, nine years, because they can't afford to because their budgets are set that they have to get X amount of money out of them before they can buy a new one i'm probably going to eventually get a laptop because that's how i like working but i might be someone that does video and this that and the other but doesn't need the power of the mac studio but what i want is the screen size that's the concern then what do you do you know you you, so you know you're in a big room it's going to be 
far away from you because you've got a big desk or whatever, or you just like to have a big screen. And it seems that if you want a big screen, you can't have an iMac. I think also there's there's an awful lot to do with design, design aesthetics as well. Um, if you go into an office where there's 20, 30, 40 desks all in, in, in an, uh, an open plan area, you don't want 20 or 30 different styles of, of machine in that area. Uh, so in that case, where it's just general task and general use, then the iMac is almost perfect. Uh, and they can, they can set it up. They can even, we, We've actually done one where they have different colored banks. There's eight on a desk. So they have four different colors. To, to for each bank of desks, uh, which looked quite good when you when you walk in and open, but then go further down, go into where the design studio in, and they're all running Mac Pros with the XLR screens. Um, so it's it it really is horses for courses, uh, and I think Apple have just increased your choice there as to what machine is best suited to the task you're going to do. Very few people need anywhere near the power of the Ultra. The Mac Studio will do most of the work that would be required in an office environment. And then the, I, the iMac 24-inch will then mop up the rest. The one thing as well you've got to remember is that, especially in studio design studios and places like that, time is money. So if you're saving half an hour, an hour a day because the machine is quicker, you know that can easily mount up to a few thousand pounds uh, in a month. The other thing which will be interesting would be to see how well it does going forwards with virtual machines so we're looking at vmware and parallels and we know that they're going to get better over time and there's a number of instances where by someone needs to run some piece of software once a month which runs on windows but everything else has to be mac wasn't there a few years back uh, alistair that um the expression was one, one of the best machines to run Windows on was a, was a Mac running Parallels. The M1 has a problem with doing that at the moment. Parallels is not is not great, and it only run Windows 11, the digital version, and the VM version, which isn't running too well. But once they they crack that, they would in, enable you to use a, a multi-threaded M chip running. You could be running both systems at the same time. And is that the reason why they've kept the Mac Mini Intel on board at the moment? That's still available, isn't it? Yeah, that's true, because it's still one of the very few machines that can run native code for VMware. And don't forget that there's a lot of Mac Minis are hidden behind big displays. So, for example, they run the displays in most train stations. They run the displays behind anywhere where you see big notifications. They're Macs. On the subject of money, would you buy the new SE or would you go for an iPhone mini? You do ask the question, don't you, Craig? I um, I don't think I could go back to such a small phone. I looked at one in the shop the other day and I couldn't believe how small it was. And just holding the Mac Mini, just it just felt like I, it was, like I was a giant in it, hands on it. It just felt really strange. I'm sure I would have got used to it over time if I had to go back to something like that. But it does seem strange. It's like picking up an old, you know, the original iPhone or, or an iPhone 4. They just seem so small and light. It's quite strange. So I can't choose between either, Craig. It's not a kind of It's not a kind of phone I'm going to be contemplating. If it's your first foray into it, then the SE makes sense because it's cheaper. The SE starts at 419, so that's up from last year's model for 64 gig. Then it's 469 for 128 gig and 569 for 256. Compare that to iPhone 13. iPhone 13 mini is 679. So you're looking at 300 pound difference. Compare that to iPhone 12, 
Mini comes in at 579. So that is now very competitive with the iPhone. So for not much more money, you could get a 12 Mini. And and the other thing, of course, is do do you fancy the new green colour that they've come up with? That the green does nothing for me. I'll be honest. I don't know why that was such a big announcement. I watched and I thought, okay. Well, it's the usual half-term um, colour upgrade to keep you interested until the new phone comes out in September. Apparently, it's a, it seemed to be a bigger thing on the American news websites than the UK websites. So I was reading on the American websites, it's the first time Apple have done green in six years for the, sm- the low-end models. Of course, it was perfect timing for Sir Paddy's Day as well. And it certainly gave, is it Samsung, a laugh because they offered a green previously so they could claim that Apple were copying them. But also it goes with the idea of, you know, people like green phones because they feel greener. On the mention of colours, and it will be our last section, is what did we think of the M1 iPad Air and the introduction of some new colours? The blue one has been particularly popular. Has anybody had a chance to look at these properly yet? No, I haven't actually been down to the local uh, Apple Cathedral for a few few weeks now, so I think it is time to get down and and feel it and check all these things. There's been a lot of rumblings about why on earth they put in M1 chips in these these lighter weight machines, uh, completely overpowered. But I've, I've been having this ongoing discussion with several of the, the, the guys on the Discord server and places. There was a little dropped announcement made about there's a new version of iMovie coming. I think they're going to bring out an updated iMovie with an awful lot of Final Cut Pro features built into it. And this is what they need the, large, the more powerful chip for. If they don't make it exactly like Final Cut Pro on the Mac, then it's a complete waste of time. But I think you have a lot of problems with, um, if you use Final Cut Pro, you know that the the libraries it creates are immense. They're huge. And the file management uh, is not very good in Final Cut Pro. Either of those problems on an, on an iPad or an iPhone, for example, would be a nightmare. That I think personally, they're going to they're going to bring out an updated version of iMovie. Now, just imagine if you get one of the new iPads or the iPad Pro, you've got a, a pretty good reasonable camera on it. The sound recording isn't too bad. So a vlogger or a person who wants to make some simple movies using the iPad to actually record it and then be able to use a, a souped up version of iMovie Plus or something like that to do the editing. And if it's now the 5G, you could get that out and delivered, uploaded uh, in a matter of, matter of minutes. There's also a couple of theories which also come out of this. Apple are planning ahead with the potential problems with the chip shortage. So they're building in potential different directions so they don't get sort of uh, stuck in a cul-de-sac or Sherlock by some other country because they can't get the software anymore or the hardware. The other one which is interesting is you start looking at what you could use an iPad in addition with so we've already seen it. you could put the iPad with the big display. You've also got the iCab, uh, iPad can be used as, uh, as part of Sidecar. So why don't you hand off some of the programs, bits like Photoshop, to the iPad? So it's, it's what Martin has been wanting for ages, a replacement for the touch bar. And the iPad now becomes the touch bar. So it integrates with the Mac. We are also looking at having better quality music. So we move from the 128 to 256 so who says that we don't go for 256 and spatial audio which will need an awful lot going on if you're getting that to run and do something else in the background 
and not reduce the, the battery life. So it's all building up for the next two years what we could potentially come up with. Yeah, I think you are right. They are future-proofing their products. They obviously know that there's something coming along the line that's going to be chip or processor intensive. So this might be a way of supporting everyone in that regard. So maybe they're working on the idea that they know that people are going to make things last longer. So that someone that previously might have replaced their iPad after three years is now going to say, well, I'm, I'm going to keep it going for five if I can. And it would cut down complaints and cut down... They're going to want people to spend money on apps. So if your iPad is so old that it can't run the latest apps, then you're not spending money, are you? Unless you update your iPad. And if you aren't doing that, then you're just going to say, well, okay, I've got this iPad. I'm going to work with what I've got. And if Apple can offer you a cheap financing solution for you to upgrade to that next bit of kit, then it all kind of rolls in together, doesn't it? It's this whole in total environment that Apple want to create. The Macosphere is is expanding so i think they're watching what uh, facebook are doing with metaverse and i think they're into that as well that they want to be in that scale that size of company which is all things to all people it's also interesting that the studio display was launched just a few months after the thunderbolt display was listed as an apple vintage product so they knew when it was going to come out and there's the potential for the upgrade cycle for sure on that subject, I think we've come to the end of episode 28 of the Brew and Bite show. And firstly, we'll say thank you to Martin. That's a pleasure. You know how much I enjoy talking to all of you and all the people out there and uh, going off on my little uh, flights of fancy of uh, the things that are going to happen. So good luck to all. And Tina, thank you. Thank you. I hope everyone has a, a, a good weekend. Thank you very much, Alistair. Uh, thank you. It's, it's been enjoyable this evening and uh will be interesting to see what not only people end up buying, but also what weather we get from uh, coming up down from the north. So Perfect. Thank you. And as always, it's thank you from me, 